Okay, thank you, Brother Dale. And your posse there. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, tonight, I want us to go back. We're going to backtrack a little bit. This is a psalm that we've already looked at. I'm not going to preach through it. I just want to read it. I did a little research today about uh, what was it after they did the first Lord's Supper. It says that they sang a hymn and then they went out. And that's when they went to the garden when Jesus prayed. And John 17, that magnificent prayer that he prayed, is included there. That's when he was arrested. And that's when he had the kiss of betrayal by Judas and all of that. They sang before they went out there. And, uh, you know, we have the Lord's Supper and we usually sing before we leave as well. But I was curious, what did Jesus sing? What was tradition for them to sing? And... Um, There'd be too much for us to go over tonight because generally they would sing from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And uh, they would have those memorized and they know the tune. We don't know the tune. And uh, can you imagine them singing like that, these praise songs uh, to the Lord? In fact, they're called the 113 to 118 are called the Hallel Psalms, because Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. Hallelujah, praise God is what that means. And each one of these uh, psalms says something about praise the Lord in it, and uh, so it's a time of praise. I'm thinking, uh, have you ever had something weighing heavy on your heart where you just couldn't think right? You just couldn't get your thoughts together. I've wondered what it would be like if you were to... Um, Come home and find out, and maybe some of you have to some degree, found out that your home was a crime scene when you got home from work or vacation or something like that. Kind of rattles you a little bit. And uh, some of the things people have to go through, my goodness, I don't know how they ever sleep at night or how they ever have a, a sane thought in their head. And uh, then I'm thinking about Jesus. What did he have other than, let's just put it this way, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders that night, didn't he? And um, I like that song by Scott Wesley Brown from a few years back where he said, if he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders and I know my brother, he can carry you. And that is certainly true. And so that night when Jesus is thinking about what he is doing, knowing what he's going through, he has told his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Remember that? And uh, he knows exactly what's happening. He has told the disciples on more than one occasion, I must go to Jerusalem and I must be betrayed and I must be arrested and I must be beaten by the uh, chief priests and scribes and then, and then die and then uh, uh, be raised from the dead. I mean, he knew all of that. None of this caught him off guard. And so when he is doing that supper that night, uh, think of what it meant to him when he said, this is my body broken for you. That was not just a symbolic act for him. He knew what was getting ready to happen. When he said, this is my blood that is given for you in the new covenant, I want you to think about the literal meaning of that. He is going to shed his blood for his people's sins and bear the wrath of God in our place and he knows it what must he have been thinking when he picked up that cup and said take and drink for this is my blood of the new covenant for you think about all that he knew he was facing and that explains a little of what he was doing when he was in the garden please don't think that he was in the garden saying let this cup pass saying lord i've changed my mind i don't want to do this this is the reason that he came and he was always submissive to the father and what he was saying was, the cup represented the judgment, the wrath of God. Let it pass from me. Don't leave me there. And uh, so he was praying about his death and his resurrection, bearing that sin and honoring God. Because when he was on the cross, the Father was on his mind. He was glorifying God. That's what his heart was doing. And that makes sense when we read this psalm together. And I want us to read it. Psalm 118, and I want you to put yourself in Jesus' sandals as he was singing this. And uh, don't you know the Lord must have a wonderful singing voice? And uh, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll get to hear this and hear him sing it. But this is what 
he is singing. This is what is on his mind. And I want you, as we read through this, I want you to think and kind of mentally highlight the uh, words, the phrases, the verses that kind of strike you as, wow, that must have been something to sing that on the night you're going to die. What would you sing on the night that you're going to die if you knew it? What would you sing on the night that you knew you were going to have your body ripped to shreds by a cat of nine tails? What would you sing on the night that you knew that they were going to bring false witnesses against you and condemn you to die? What would you sing if you knew that all of this was going to happen to you? And uh, here's what the Lord sang. Let's look at verse 1. Are you ready? Psalm 118. If you are, say amen. We don't want to miss this. This is the Lord singing this. Uh, a psalm of David, most likely. Don't know for sure, but most likely. And it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Could you say that if you were facing what Jesus is facing? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Last thing Jesus is going to get on this night is mercy, isn't it? Verse 2. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, the priest, now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. What do you think the point of those few verses are? Or the point is, pardon me, his mercy endures forever. Yeah. This is on his way to the cross, on his way to the worst time of his existence. Verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. That's a big statement, isn't it? I will not fear. What man can do, what can man do to me? Well, he's getting ready to find out, but he's discounting that. He's thinking more about what he's going to bear when God judges him much more than the pain of the cross. I said I wasn't going to preach, sorry. Uh, verse 7. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me. Well, that's true when you have Romans and Jews and uh, Simon of Cyrene and other people like that, right? All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord... I will destroy them. They surround me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like the fire, like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. See, there's a battle going on here on the cross, isn't there? And somebody's going to win, and it's not the world, and it's not the Romans, and it's not the Jews. It's the Lord Jesus. Verse 13. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live. Think about that. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely. Boy, that's an understatement. But he has not given me over to death. Somebody say amen to that. We have a living Savior, don't we? Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. I will hallelujah. 
This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And Jesus actually is that gate, isn't he? The way, the truth, and the life. Verse 21. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's speaking of himself there. This was the Lord's doing. Okay, we need to say that again. Everything that Jesus has gone through, everything he is going to go through, everything, the horrors of what he's going to experience, he is confessing here in verse 13, this was the Lord's doing. It's not the devil, it's not the Jews, it's not the Romans, it's the Lord. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Got to get that. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Could you say that? That's amazing. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Make this worthwhile. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they said just a few days earlier when he was coming on the donkey into Jerusalem, right? We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. There's no escaping, no getting out of this, no turning back, in other words. Verse 28, you are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So when you think about Jesus singing that, what faith? Which, of course, we would expect the Son of God to have perfect faith in God. But what a great example that even in his humanity, even in everything that he's facing there, such confidence, and he's stalwart in it, he's not wiggling, he's not trying to get out of it. He's not waffling. He's not going wobbly, as the British would say. He is steadfastly set on this event in Jerusalem and on the cross. He's giving thanks for it. He's praising God for it. He's expressing his faith that I'm going to go through all of this and yet I'm not going to die. Uh, that was not saying that he would not lose his life for those three days. He's just saying that when when you put it all together, you're going to see me on the other side coming out of that tomb on the third day as a living, breathing person uh, resurrected from the dead. In fact, he's a human in heaven today, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so all of this is amazing as I think about this. And this is the day that the Lord has made. You know, I usually think about that when things go well, when something's going good, when something unexpected happens. Maybe a verse like that comes to my mind or even a praise the Lord or a hallelujah or thank you, Lord. And yet Jesus facing this particular day where he is going to bear the wrath of God for our sins and he is going to be unjustly beaten and tortured and questioned and all of those things and yet this is this is what comes out of his mouth i want to ask you a question what comes out of you when you get under pressure what comes out of you when you are uh, stressed out to the max jesus said my soul is encompassed with grief that means he was pressured all around him with the grief of what he was going to do and you know what's interesting what comes out of me when i get under pressure is not always uh, good and yet when you squeeze jesus and you pressure him with everything what comes out of him and uh, you know the old saying is what's in you is what comes out of you when you get shaken up and uh, what came out of jesus praise and thanks and faith and all of that no wonder he's our great shepherd. No wonder he is our uh, example. No wonder he is our life. And no wonder we need him to live in us and to fill us so that when we go through the stresses and pressures of life, that what comes out of us brings honor and glory and thankfulness to the Lord. If only we could be like that, how different 
our life would be, how different our relationships would be, how different our testimony would be, how different our regrets would be. Jesus died without any regrets. Can you imagine that? And uh, there he is going through all of this out of his great love for us. And uh, that just is so impressive that he would sing something like that to his father facing everything that he is going to face. Well, that's the psalm that he sang. One of these days, maybe we'll know how it goes. If it was David that wrote it, maybe when you get to heaven, you can go, Hey, David, sing that for me. I want to know how that goes. And uh, maybe he will. Maybe the Lord Jesus will sing it for us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And maybe we'll get to hear it. So the second thing that uh, comes up whenever I think about this event and Jesus at the Last Supper and the first uh, Lord's Supper service is um, the prophecies that he fulfilled. And this is something that I don't see how any of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Jewish elite, the scribes or the doctors or any of those, I don't know how they missed any of this. And I'm not completely convinced that they did. I think that there were at least some of them that walked into this saying, crucify him, away with him, let him be crucified. I think they walked into it with their eyes wide open. They knew exactly who he was because he fulfilled everything they had been reading about, praying about, studying, and preaching for decades. And when we think about Jesus and what all he fulfilled, and uh, what are the odds of anybody that is uh, going to fulfill any of these particular things. Now, you might, you know, kind of uh, hit it uh, lucky, we might say, on one or two, but not on all of them. Now, technically, as we think about Jesus, he is a Judean by birth. He is from the tribe of Judah, and he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, but the people there never considered him a Judean. All of the people that were around Jerusalem and in that southern part of uh, Israel, they all considered him a Galilean, which I will show you in a few minutes why that is a a big deal. And uh, he is uh, born in Judah. He is a descendant of David. He's of the tribe of Judah, as we said. He's born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea. And uh, yet he's considered a Galilean. He's raised in Nazareth. And all of these things were prophesied. Now, um, when we think about scriptures in the Old Testament that said that he would be raised in the northern part of Israel and yet born in Bethlehem. How do you do that, especially back then? It's uh, a little more possible now because a woman could be pregnant, be on a plane, be in another country and uh, have a baby and then fly back home and all of that could take place but a little bit more difficult in those days and yet it was said that he was going to be called a Nazarene and a Galilean he was going to be called out of Egypt how do you get that and yet at the same time he was going to be born in Bethlehem and there were several towns called Bethlehem but specifically in the book of Micah it says Bethlehem in the hill country of Judea So now how do you do all of that and what are the odds of anybody doing that today much less doing that back in the time in which Jesus lived? And you know that his story was out there and you know there were people who saw all of that and uh, there there was even uh, some people who wanted healing and they cried out, Oh Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They knew his genealogy. They knew he was related to King David. They knew that he had the right to be sitting on the throne if the Romans weren't there. And uh, I think for some of them that might have tripped them up too. If you are the son of David, or maybe since you are the son of David, why aren't you doing something to restore the kingdom to Israel? Even the disciples asked Jesus that before he ascended. Lord, is it at this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel and sit on that throne? And so uh, think about what it would take to fulfill all of these things. Now, even though he was of the tribe of Judah and he was born in the land of Judah, the, and Judea, the New Testament calls it, he uh, spoke like a Galilean. They had a very thick accent and certain things that they would uh, emphasize when they spoke so that you always knew if you were living back then uh, what part of the country 
people you were talking to were from, especially if they were from Galilee. It'd be like having somebody from Mississippi in uh, New York City. You'd probably be able to tell a difference in the way that they talk and the people in uh, New York City would talk. They would stick out. And uh, that's the way it was. We know that because when Jesus is on trial, that's one of the things that was pointed out of Peter's denial. Somebody said, uh, you, you're one of them, aren't you? We can tell that you belong with them. How could they do that? Well, they dress that way, they talk that way, and they could seem to be from that part of the country, you could tell. And uh, Galileans tended to dress uh, a little bit differently than the people in Judea did. And... Uh, I think it's fair to say that when you, uh, even though the Galileans had their problems and at one time they wanted to stone Jesus because of some things that he said, they had some hurdles to get over too. But for the most part, he must have been much more accepted uh, among Galileans than he was by the Judeans. The Judeans were kind of snobs. Okay, They thought they were better than those people up in the northern part of the uh, nation and uh, they spoke better they were more educated and they were more cultured and the the two different uh, lands uh, they were almost like two different nations because for most of their history they had been two different nations you remember that David was able to unite all 12 tribes. Before then, they had just been a loose collection of tribal people. And David was able to pull them all together. And he reigned for seven years over uh, 10 tribes. And then, uh, I mean, over, over Judah, pardon me. And then, uh, after seven years, he was able to move the capital to Jerusalem. And he was able to unite all 12 tribes, even the 10 northern tribes, joined with him, and he ruled over them. And so did Solomon. They were a united kingdom at uh, that particular time. But you remember, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was just, oh, he was a jerk. And um, after uh, Solomon died, Solomon was the builder, building projects, building projects, building projects, which meant tax money, tax money, tax money. And the uh, people that advised Solomon, came to Rehoboam, and they said, Look, you're a young guy, you're just starting out, and surely you want to really endear yourself to the people and to uh, have their loyalty. And Rehoboam was not a dumb guy. He goes, Yeah, I really would like that. And they said, Then lighten the tax load and the burden that your father put upon all of the people, and they will love you and serve you forever. Show some mercy to them. Let them keep more of their money. Not a bad deal for any government, even our government, to think like that. It's your money, after all. And uh, so Rehoboam, being the wise fellow that he was, he consulted with the young bucks that he ran with and uh, talked to them, and they said, Oh, no, you can't let up like that. People will take advantage of you, and they won't respect you. You've got to make them respect you and you've got to be tough and you've got to be hard and you tell them i'm not going to cut any taxes in fact we're going to increase the taxes and if you think my father was bad i'll tell you what it's really going to be like my little finger is going to be the size of his waist you know what he was saying i'm going to be worse than dad was and you remember what happened civil war and the nation split, and those ten tribes went back and uh, lived in the north, and they had their own kings, and that was the nation of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, you did a really good job. You went from 12 tribes down to two. That, that's, good, that's good thinking, good strategy. And so his kingdom has shrunk significantly, and so now they're two different kingdoms. And they lived this way for a long, long time. Sometimes they would help each other. Sometimes they would get along, even though they were all descendants of Abraham. They, they didn't really care much for each other. Sometimes they would, you know, help and fight in battle and do those kind of things. But the other times they would actually fight each other and kill each other. And they just didn't get along very, very well. And so they were used to having two different governments, two different kingdoms, two different uh, ideals about everything, and um, two different cultures, I guess we would say. And so uh, that's what happened and what happened with these two people. And Jesus 
was born in the southern kingdom where the kingdom of Judah would have been, not too far outside of Jerusalem in the hill country there. And yet he was raised up in the northern part, the northern part of the nation, which would have been the northern kingdom. And um, that's where he grew up. And that's what he would think like. That's what he would speak like. That's how he would dress. That's what he would relate to. Now, the two... um, Parts, Judea and Galilee, the north and the south, they had other things that kind of divided them as well. In fact, uh, in Judea, the land is rather hilly and mountainous, and it's really, really difficult to grow crops there. And they would grow some, but not a whole lot. The northern part, Galilee, now they were the ones that were the more prosperous farmers. And they were the ones that they had the Uh, crops and the agriculture and the cattle and all of those things that could grow. Judea mainly had sheep. And so uh, Judea depended upon Galilee for their food supply. And they depended upon them so that they could eat and so that they could, um, you know, survive. And yet at the same time, Judea had the temple. Judea had the capital city. Judea had more of the population. Judea had the more educated people. And so uh, whenever you saw a a Judean and a Galilean and they were together, you would look at one a little bit more stylish. His tuxedo fit a little better than the other guys did. And when you would hear them talk, this one guy had better grammar and a bigger vocabulary than this other guy did. And uh, so the people in Judea kind of looked down on their country cousins up in Galilee and they just didn't think much about them and didn't want to be like them. And there was another thing that kind of happened too. In Galilee, there were a lot more Gentiles that lived up there. In fact, not too far from Nazareth where the Lord Jesus grew up, there was a city, uh, I think it's called Sephora. Trying to remember. Uh, I think that it's something very close to that. And uh, it was a city that had more of a Roman culture than it did a Jewish culture. And it was very immoral, and they worshipped false gods there. And uh, so all of the people down in Judea were just kind of suspicious of the Galileans. Uh, Yeah, I know you're a Jew, but you're just barely, just barely a Jew. And some of this kind of reminds me of uh, our own country with Uh, the different regions, north and south, red state, blue state, that kind of thing, and the way we're kind of suspicious of each other and not real sure of each other, and we tend to think alike in clumps, and uh, that's the same way they did. Everybody in Galilee pretty much had the same uh, perspective on things, and everybody in Judea kind of had the same perspective uh, on life and religion and everything. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were in the south. They were in the Jerusalem area. And that's where uh, they caused so much trouble for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the way the Lord was born, born of a virgin, as Isaiah predicted, and born in Judah, and born in Bethlehem, the specific town, and born of David, born into a specific tribe, those kind of things. Man, the odds of anybody being able to fulfill all of that are just astronomical. And uh, you have no control about when you're born, where you're born, to whom you're born, or anything like that. Uh, In fact, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time researching our genealogy because we have no idea. We didn't choose it. It was assigned to us. It was given to us. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, for anybody to do any kind of research and find out who he was and where he was born and how they had to flee to Egypt and then how they came back and because Herod the Great had died and uh, his son was in control of that particular region, he decided we better head up north and go back to Nazareth where Mary and Joseph were from. They were true blue Galileans. And so uh, they go up there. Anybody seeing all of that would, uh, and then seeing his miracles, and then seeing all of the things that he did that had been predicted, they would see all of that. Anybody with uh, half a brain and educated in the Old Testament would have looked at that and said, there's something about that guy. We need to look into him. And uh, so that was 
the prophecy that he fulfilled. But there's something else that I kind of think is cool when we read the story of Jesus, especially as we get into this last week of his life. Because keep in mind, whenever he does the Passover and he institutes the Lord's Supper, that was uh, on a Thursday. It was on the Sunday before that he got the uh, colt that had never been ridden. And it's amazing, Jesus gets on an unridden colt. Anybody else would be bucked off. But Jesus, the colt just calms down and is instantly broken because Jesus is Lord over all nature, right? And uh, so he gets on there and the colt says, Oh, the big boss is here, better calm down. And uh, they come up over the mountain. That's where he weeps over Jerusalem. And uh, here he is, as it had been prophesied, I believe in the book of Zechariah, that he would come, your king is coming, and he's riding on a donkey, a, a donkey colt. And uh, this was saying, basically, I come in peace. I'm not coming as a conqueror. I'm coming in peace. I'm not coming as a threat to Caesar. I'm not coming as a threat to Pilate. I'm not coming as a threat to Herod. I'm not coming as a threat to anything like that. I am the prince of peace, and I'm coming in peace. A donkey is not a very warlike animal, is it? And so uh, he's come, and the people quote the psalm that we just read, Hosanna, Lord save us, is what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are shouting, and you remember the Pharisees, part of the religious elite that were the Judeans, they don't like this very much. Tell your people to just shut their mouths and to calm down. Who do they think they are anyway? Because they would consider everything these people are saying as being nothing but uh, just blasphemy to the 10th power. And so Jesus, remember, he says, it won't do any good because if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. And uh, so, you know, let them go. And that has happened on that day. It's been quite a day. And uh, then he uh, goes on Monday to the temple. And when he comes into the temple, you talk about stirring things up. He doesn't do anything quietly. He comes into the temple and there's a place where they were exchanging money because in the temple, whenever you came there, and people all over Israel were required to come together for the Passover at the temple. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that uh, Caiaphas and all of his people had a business going there in the temple where they were selling kosher sacrifices, acceptable sacrifices. And it always seemed to be that whenever you were traveling and you uh, came to offer your sacrifice, the priest and others, they would look and they go, oh, I'm so sorry, you brought that lamb for nothing. There's a little pimple right there and uh, this is unacceptable. However, you're in luck. We just happen to have plenty of certified lambs over here. And boy, you would pay through the nose for that. The lambs and the sacrifices would be expensive. And not only that, but whenever you pulled out your wallet and you pulled out your money, they would look and they would say, Oh, oh, so uh, you're from Cyrene, are you? Uh, yeah, I sure am. Me and my brother Simon came here. He goes, yeah, I'm so sorry, but we can't accept the Cyrenian money or that Roman money. Uh, but you're in luck. We happen to have lots of shekels here. And for a fee, we will exchange your money for the shekels. And then you can purchase the lamb. And their rate of exchange was, well, they didn't do you any favors. It was pretty high. They, they were making some money. Caiaphas was getting wealthy off of all of this. And so Jesus, on the week that he is going to be the perfect sacrificial lamb who is going to die to freely pay for our sins, he walks in and he sees all of this going on. So what does he do? He goes over and takes one of those big heavy tables and powerfully just throws it over. And I mean, coins go flying everywhere. And you can hear the sheep as they're bleeding. And uh, B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G. And uh, you can hear the birds. You know, some of the sacrificial birds. The turtle doves and others. As they're squawking and things like that. And you can hear the people yelling as they're cursing. And 
and uh, uh, you know, so what are you doing here? And Jesus is so imposing and so powerful that he single-handedly turns all of the tables over and drives all of the people out of that place. Now, two things I think about. Number one, Jesus was no sissy to be able to do that, right? I mean, this guy is powerful. After all, he had grown up in a carpenter shop, hauling logs, cutting down trees, and uh, getting the lumber ready. Uh, all had to be done by hand. He must have been a powerful, powerful man physically. And uh, the other thing that I think about, too, is he certainly didn't come into town quietly, did he? I mean, he's causing problems. And, uh, you know, they always tell us, if you really want to get to the root of something, then uh, follow the money. Follow the money. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The very first thing he confronts is their false, superficial, pseudo-religious system. They pretended to follow the laws of Moses and to honor God, but not really. It was really about the money. And so he hits them right where it hurts. You're hypocrites, you're liars. My father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations and you've turned it into a den of thieves. You're robbing your own people. The law of Moses uh, forbid one Jew charging interest to another Jew when you loaned money. And here these people are basically charging them through the nose on things that they can't help. Sorry, your stuff just doesn't happen to be right, but we've got our stuff here, so uh, just, you know, go ahead and use it, and, uh, you know, ha, 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 the more the merrier, right? And uh, Jesus, boy, he really causes trouble. And then uh, the next day, he's around there at the temple, and uh, these people are thinking, you know, he's just a rube from Galilee. What can he know? And so that's when they start asking him this series of questions. And it's amazing, they couldn't answer any of his questions, but he could answer every one of them, and that just infuriates them because he's making them look stupid in front of the little people. Now, let's remember, this is Passover. There are tons of people at the temple. It's the biggest day of the year, and an awful lot of them came and traveled from Galilee. And the people that are from Galilee are sitting there and they're going, Hey, he's one of us. I know his kin. I know his people. We're related. And look at the way he's dressed. And do you hear that wonderful Galilean brogue? Man, it sounds good. And then when these snotty Pharisees and Sadducees come up thinking they're going to trap Jesus and Jesus is uneducated country boy is what they would think makes mincemeat out of them and silences them what was going to happen well all of the Galileans all the country folk that were around there were going way to go he's one of us he's one of ours and they couldn't stand that and they began to plot saying we've got to get rid of him how are we going to do it so how do you know all of that well, let's think about some things, and I'll throw out a few verses to you. And I want you to notice um, what it says in these verses about these problems that he caused. Now, first of all, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. And boy, he certainly did that. But think about the 19th chapter of Luke, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And as he was teaching, verse 47, As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people. Doesn't that just, you, you just almost want to say that with a snotty voice, don't you? And the principal men of the temple uh, were seeking to destroy him. Well, why didn't they? They had all the power. They had the soldiers. They had all of that kind of stuff, but they didn't. Look at verse 38. 
but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This isn't going to look good. Let's get him now. No, no, we can't. Look at them. They're all listening to him, and they're all paying attention to him, and they think that he's a prophet from God, and what is that going to say about us if we arrest him and if we take him away? Notice what they're doing here. They're playing a game. And so Jerusalem, being filled with all of these people from all over, a lot of them Galileans for Passover, but when you think about Matthew 21, 45, and 46... It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Now, I don't know. That's funny to me. Can you imagine? Hey, I think I've just been insulted. You know? Yeah, I can almost hear, wasn't it one of the three stooges that said something like that? I think it's Curly. Can you imagine? They're all listening there and they're smug and they're so smart and they're listening to this rube talk about all these things and then they go, Wait a, minute, wait a minute, I think I've just been insulted. What's going on here? I don't know, that's just funny to me. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, look at this next phrase, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, I'm going to make a guess. They didn't fear the Judeans. They didn't fear the people that lived around there. They didn't fear the Pharisees. They didn't fear the Sadducees. You know who they feared? All those country bumpkins that are down here from up north. We can't do this in front of all of them because they're so dumb. They will, they'll think it's a riot and a mob and they'll join in and they might kill one of us. And uh, we won't be able to do what we're trying to do. And I think that's what answers the question. How can you go from on Sunday to uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to, uh, by the end of the week, crucify him. I think they're two different crowds, my opinion. I think when you're up there, when he's coming into Jerusalem, I think those are his fellow Galileans crying out and uh, saying that. And I think the reason that they held the trial, did you know the trial he had was illegal? They held it at an illegal time, and they held it at night. I think they did it because... The working people had to be in bed at a certain time so they could get up and go to work the next day. And the Galileans were used to going to bed early and getting up early and all of that. So they decided to have the trial when all those people would not be around. They wouldn't know what's going on. They would be asleep. I think there was a plan in all of that because this was pitting the, I don't know, what, what, could we say it like the, the red part against the blue part of the nation? And they're playing games, and they're playing games with the law, and they're working around to where they're not really legal, but they've got enough cover that if uh, anybody were to question them on it, they could probably get away with it, okay? And so they're kind of playing games here, and this is all what's happening because all of these, you know, these stupid people here, they're dumb enough to think that he might be a prophet, and he's talking about us, by the way. And so uh, no wonder they arrested and tried him at night. And um, they had to get him away from all of his fellow Galileans because there could be trouble. Could be trouble. Could be a January 6th situation or something like that as far as they're concerned. Okay? And uh, Judea and Galilee, I think when we read the Bible, we read, and the Jews did this, and we think it's the whole nation, the whole group, but the Jews were kind of divided. Judea and Galilee, uh, they had the same religion, but they were kind of divided in the way that they lived. And a lot of that goes back to the fact when they were two different nations and that history there. Uh, the northern kingdom had a whole lot more idolatry than the southern kingdom did. And uh, they were separated by Samaria. That didn't help anything. And so their cultures were a little bit different. And Galilee is not considered to be really Jewish enough. You're Jewish, but not Jewish enough. And you don't go far enough. And that's why things would happen. Uh, all of the disciples were Galileans, by the way. Well, except for one. Any guess which one was the Judean disciple? Judas. Yeah, all the rest of them. 
just Galilean country folk. And uh, so when they go through the grain field, what do they do? Those rude, dirty, crude Galileans don't even wash their hands. They just take the grain off and then they rub it in their fingers and blow the chaff away and then they chew on it and eat it. And that's why they come up and they say, do your disciples not wash like they're supposed to? Because (laughs) we would never do anything like that in Judea. You know, we're way above that. We, we, we're clean. And uh, you guys are not necessarily clean. There were all kinds of clashes and things that would come up like that because they were so different. And um, there were uh, cities, of course, as we said before, that were more Gentile in that uh, northern part of Israel. And uh, accents were different, all of those kind of things. And uh, they even did Passover on a different day. Have you ever noticed that uh, Jesus and his disciples ate their Passover? And yet it says in John 19, 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Are you impressed? You didn't know I knew Aramaic, did you? And uh, yet there it is. I'll say it again. Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. This is when they say, away with him, let him be crucified. And Pilate washes his hands and turns him over to do it on the day when they were killing Passover lambs. Well, wait a minute. Jesus has already had his Passover lamb. He's already done that. Why? Because the Galileans figured time differently than the Judeans did. That's just another one of their divides And so when uh, Jesus and the disciples do the Passover, they do it a little earlier. And the night that he is turned over to be put on the cross is coincidentally the night when all of the people in Judah are killing their Passover lambs at the same time that the true Passover lamb is being killed. I just always find that kind of uh, interesting. It says it's about the sixth hour. That would be uh, noon, I believe. And uh, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priests, these who were supposed to be the most committed to God, they answer and they say, We have no king but Caesar. They just blasphemed. And they just brought judgment upon themselves, didn't they? So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so uh, they have to be careful because if anything happens, what if these uh, country bumpkin redneck uh, Galileans, what if they get all stirred up over something and they start a riot? Then all of a sudden these Jewish elites lose their power. Rome's going to come in and dismiss them. And even the Romans were concerned about all of this because if something breaks out, Pontius Pilate is thinking, then Rome is going to deal with me. And uh, later in A.D. 70, something similar happened, and Rome did come in, and Jerusalem is totally destroyed, and the temple is totally destroyed. And uh, that's kind of what happened in all of that. Their worst fears actually came true. This is the world in which they lived. And so they've got to be very careful. Keep the peace, keep the peace, keep the peace. Don't stir up anything. Don't cause any trouble. Don't arrest him now. Don't put him on trial now. Let's wait. Let's do it later. Let's do it when nobody's looking. Let's do it when nobody is around. Let's do it secretly. And uh, let's not make a big spectacle out of all of this until we have got him. And there's nothing that anyone else can do about all of this. And uh, I think about... Uh, what, a, what a strange situation. So I close by just simply saying this. Was all of this just Jesus being a victim of circumstances? To quote Curly of the Three Stooges again. Victim of circumstances? Or was this a part of a plan? Acts chapter 2. When Peter gives his day of Pentecost speech when 3,000 are saved. You talk about stirring up trouble. He says, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, you know, he emphasizes that Nazareth, Jesus, this Galilean guy you didn't think too much of, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as 
you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, Romans, and have crucified and put to death. But I've got news for you, whom God, you're on the wrong side, boys, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And you know what you find out? All of this stuff was not just, oh, look at the times in which they lived. No, 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 no. This was the plan of God. The situation in Galilee, the situation in Judea, all of their thoughts, all of the things that were going on, God allowed all of that to bring it all to this one climatic moment where Jesus would be crucified and then be raised from the dead. And history and the world, and especially those of us who have believed, we have all been changed, and it's all by the predetermined plan of God. I wonder if God is still in just as much control today as he was back then. What do you think? So why do we keep acting like the times in which we live are just, oh, out of control? Everything has gone nuts. I, I bet God doesn't even know what's going on. We better pray and tell him what's happening down here because he doesn't know. That's foolish. What we need to do is rest in him. And we need to understand God's got it all in control. And he is doing something great and it all centers around Jesus because whenever it's going to be, it will happen and it'll happen on God's timetable. And what's that going to be? Jesus, this same one, is coming again to rule and reign on this earth. God's got it all under control. Rest in him. Father, we know that in our world today, there are a lot of things we didn't see coming just a few years ago. This whole transgender mess, our racial divide. We thought we were making progress 20 years ago and thought we just about had that problem licked. Now it seems like we're more divided than ever. And it used to be where uh, I, I would hear my dad say there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two political parties. Well, before he died, there certainly was. And uh, we, we just look and see all of these kind of things happening in our nation. And uh, we think about the different times when we have been so united together. And uh, some in here can remember World War II and we can remember 9-11 and things like that. And uh, Father, we uh, are so sorry and so sad about the state of our nation. And yet, forgive us when we act as though somehow you messed up, somehow you let things slip, somehow you are not paying close enough attention to things. And to help us to remember, whether we understand it or not, you've got all things in control, just as you did on that week, that holy week, as we would call it, 2,000 years ago. And thank you, and let us see that, and let us understand that, and let us find peace in you, because you are the Prince of Peace. Give us that peace and let us testify that peace as we go through this wicked, tumultuous world. Let us be an example of what a believer is and of the grace and the power of God. Let it flow through us and let it flow powerfully. And Lord, we do pray even now, come Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.